Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Us Kids These Days, the podcast. I am one of your hosts, Annalise Jenke, and today I'm joined by... Hey, guys, my name is Mustafa Minir. I'm Jackson Bell. And I'm Anna Gaston. And today we are going to be talking about the U.S. election. Um, And just a little disclaimer, all of these thoughts are purely our own and are not at all representative of UNCTAD or the UN. Um, So today we're just going to kind of have some conversations about the upcoming U.S. election. Uh, Usually we try to talk about pretty international topics, but quite honestly, this election is a bit of an international topic. Um, So, yeah, I'm going to start off right now by talking a little bit about the presidential and vice presidential debates. Uh, If you are in the U.S., I'm sure that you've probably heard about them. Um, And there's been these, you know, it seems like everything in today's COVID era is unprecedented. Um, And this, the presidential debate especially, was quite unprecedented. Um, There were interruptions left and right, uh, people being quite disrespectful, um, jabs and below the belt arguments it was it was interesting to watch for sure did anybody else um on the podcast here anybody else watch the debates yeah i did yeah i mean they were pretty memorable to say the least yeah me too i think um honestly the vice presidential debates were much more civil and a lot um a lot more professional and kind of what i expected so i don't even know if we can call the debate the debate <laughs> more like an argument almost yeah it was more of a more of a fight than anything a pretty good way to describe that definitely the uh vice presidential debate was a much better gave i think voters a much better understanding of the arguments of the two sides um yeah so go ahead yeah jackson i I was just gonna say i i i get what you guys are saying i think that the reason that it was like that is because you know most of the time it was it was Trump with little jabs and then Biden trying to hold back with a couple of insults like spice like um, sprinkled in. But it, it makes sense from a, a strategical point of view in terms of why Trump was doing that, because like his numbers are bad to the point where he needed a really, really good debate or one that in some way shook things up, right? Because over the past, like, since Joe Biden has sort of de facto secured the nomination, the polls have wavered between six and eight percent and for for Biden and not moved basically any at all. Even when coronavirus hit, hit, Trump's numbers didn't move, you know, they needed a real miracle in terms of those poll numbers a little bit close to the median. So I don't know what I would have done different, but Trump's strategy of being hyper aggressive, while it looks like it didn't pay off in this one because uh, this debate was was rough for him, um, Joe Biden sort of held his own. He probably was looking for like a really bad Joe Biden gaffe that he could harp on, but Biden didn't really have any of those. So he ended up with a weaker debate. But I think if you're looking at it from a pure uh, horse race perspective, it was the right move to make in terms of being hyper-aggressive. I don't know if I would say it was the right move to make, but I do understand the strategy behind it. Um, 
And we actually see a, a somewhat similar strategy um, with Trump uh, deciding not to participate in the second presidential town hall debate and instead um, hosting his own separate town hall at the exact same time as Biden's town hall conversation with the public. Um, that's kind of a similar sort of tactic where he's trying to um you know, trying to say that he has better ratings and and more ploys to try and um, exactly like you said, he's trying to get his ratings up. Um, He's trying to get more approval and make a splash, a splash, which is what got him elected in the first place. Um, So we kind of touched a little bit on the happenings of the uh, second uh, debate. Typically, um, the second presidential debate is in a town hall format. And um, with COVID, there would be it was going to be online, especially with uh, President Trump recently uh, testing positive for COVID. Um, However, Trump decided that he did not want to participate in an online uh, town hall forum. Um, And so, as I already mentioned, there's going to be two separate ones and you can choose one to watch (laughs) uh, since they'll be happening at the same time. Um, just to kind of go over a little bit of some of the major topics that um, kind of the both debates went over, um, talking about COVID and the handling of COVID, there were a lot of hypotheticals brought up um, and a lot of, um, I don't know, parallels drawn between the swine flu, I believe it was, as well as COVID. Oh, yeah. H1N1. Yeah. Good old H1N1. Yeah. So that was interesting. That was brought up a lot by both... Um, Pence and Trump, I believe, too, about uh, the Obama administration, including Biden and their handling of that. Um, The two events are very different in um, how many people were actually affected. Uh, COVID has a much, much larger impact, but that was talked about a lot. The economy and especially the recovery of the economy. There was kind of the talk of um, a K-shaped recovery uh, that Biden referenced, which is those who are very rich are recovering and those who are uh, maybe in lower classes are not recovering as well. Um, And Trump stuck by his statements of saying that the economy as a whole is doing well and that, um, you know, the COVID handling COVID and the economy as we have um, is working to, uh, according to him, Um, international relationships were brought up. Corruption was brought up a little bit. Um, And actually, one thing that I was saddened by a little bit that we had to talk about was both Pence and Trump were questioned about if Trump would peacefully relinquish power if he didn't win the election. Uh, I'm just curious, what did you guys think about that? Yeah. um, Oh, go ahead. Oh, thank you. obviously disheartening but i mean i think it's a valid question to ask um president trump has kind of taken the stance that um he's essentially saying he won't back down he won't step down but he's done it in um sort of a clever way instead of just you know taking the approach that some for uh foreign military military leaders have or um authoritarian leaders have of just like refusing to step down, he's trying to essentially make the election look like a big sham. And so if he can get the American people to believe that um, voting by mail is be um, fraud and that this election is essentially not legitimate, then he's going to be able to put up this front of, I'm not stepping down, not because um, I'm some radical 
um, anti-American president who refuses to relinquish power, but rather he's going to say me stepping down is anti-democratic because your votes are not actually counting because of voter fraud. Mm -hmm. Um, Really good point. That question is essentially, you know, showing like he has already set this doubt in the minds of his voter base and a lot of the American people who might even be a bit more moderate in hopes that he can basically nullify the election so that when he refuses to step down or if, but um, I I do think it's going to be more of a when than an if, (laughs) he's going to be able to say like, okay, well, this election's not legitimate. So why should I step down to a man that's didn't truly win the presidency? And I think we're going to see basically a Bush Gore scenario all over again. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny when you look at it historically, Uh, I know in history, it's called the Revolution of 1800, where for the first time in like a major um, state, um, not U.S. state, but just like country, uh, you had a transition from opposing viewpoints, opposing parties. Uh, This was like when we went from Adams to Jefferson very early on in the U.S. And it was something that made us unique compared to a lot of European, uh, you know, at this point, empires that were, you know, having revolutions back and forth every time they had a switch of ideology and, you know, a statement that, you know, not accepting results and not relinquishing power peacefully, you know, kind of is regressive in the sense that we're going back to some of the things that we tried to fix, like at the foundation of our country. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, so those were some, thank you both for um, those very interesting points of view on that and um, kind of educating us a little bit more on that. Um, I think one of the last things I wanted to mention um, was a pretty surprising part of the debate um, where President Donald Trump was asked to uh, denounce white supremacy. Um, And there was reference made to a group called the Proud Boys, which are associated with white supremacy. Um, And instead of denouncing them, uh, Trump said, quote, stand down and stand by. Um, and this quote has since become infamous, at least on my news feed. It seemed to be everywhere right after the debate. Um, but that was pretty shocking. Um, I guess it, I, I wasn't completely surprised, but it was just the blatancy and, um, there was just no hiding the support of white supremacy anymore. Um, yeah, that was really, really shocking. Um, would you guys kind of agree with that assessment? For sure, 100%. I mean, is it shocking, though, really? This, More disappointing sort than of shocking. Been, I, I, I think that if, if we accept this, this view that, that Trump might or is, is very likely going to contest the results of this election, then I, I think that one of, the, one of the biggest ways to ensure that that election process, that you know, is happening if he was trying to contest an election where he lost is to have militant groups who would be willing to uh, support you via violent means. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I could never imagine, uh, you know, Trump winning in in 2020 and then Antifa holding up Biden 2020 signs and uh, like burning down state capitals where they counted ballots or something mm-hmm. that that just. It, it, it's not it's not a possibility. But with these right wing groups, you know, we've seen that they've been been militant enough already. They they 
um, are the perpetrators of the majority of uh, extremist crime here in the United States. And as well, we've already seen some action taken by them in terms of uh, harassing elected officials. We had the Virginia and the Michigan governor uh, have failed kidnapping attempts on them by white, ring, white right wing supremacist groups that are closely associated with the Proud Boys mm. and um, Nazi ideology. It's, I, I'd say it is concerning. It's just, this feels like the inevitability that ha happens when this sort of president. I think Trump in his first year, first three years of office, he 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 was very racist on Twitter, you know, um, but governing wise governed pretty much like how, how I would imagine like Jeb Bush governing, you know, maybe put up a couple more border walls, but he governed like a modern Republican. But over this last year, he's been getting more and more He's been turning his rhetoric, his authoritarian rhetoric, more and more into authoritarian actions. Like you see with uh, quashing protesters using the border patrol force um, in places like Seattle. And his, I, the moment that I remember distinctly in my mind is his Mount Rushmore speech, where he sort of gets into talking about, there's a, distinct, a distinction between protesters and Americans. And that sort of textbook dehumanization is when the United States generally hops in and overthrows whatever democratically elected country uh, is in Latin America that does those kind of things. But there's sort of nobody to hold us accountable because we are the ones who typically do that yeah. well or not. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that insight. Um, yeah. You're, I mean, you're I welcome. think. It was pretty cool, wasn't <laughs> especially it? At the it was end. pretty sick, so. <laughs> um, I think especially at the end, um, mentioning, you know, I don't know, international. This is, I mean, there are already countries who are, and I think that this is relatively standard, but countries are seriously looking at what are we going to do if Trump refuses to relinquish power and we will have to have external forces step in, um, which. No, I mean, they're not. Or, don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. Nobody's going to step to America if if Donald Trump like rigs this election. Like he, not rigs, but like if not if rigs, he... but if if Biden wins the election and Trump refuses to relinquish, I think most definitely because of the importance of the U.S. and economics and um, a lot of pretty important issues, I think that that would be kind of important. Now, I don't think that that would happen. Uh, I don't know. I think we're going to have to, I think some pretty bad stuff would have to happen first. Like you mentioned some of those militant groups stepping up and wreaking havoc, but if it starts to affect the global scene, um, you know, countries are, are going to act in self-interest and that might mean helping us out. Yeah. I would a hundred percent see, like I could uh, very clearly foresee targeted sanctions on the United States. I think when we say step up to the United States, we might get a little bit of this like um, perception of military force, which I don't think any country, I mean, logically, I don't think it would be in any country's benefit to mm -hmm. try and enter a military dispute with the United States. But do I think that a lot of other global hegemons are going to retaliate in the form of sanctions? 100%, because that's the sort of thing that the United States would do in the case of another country. Mm -hmm. um, and I think 
sanctions would actually be the smartest way to attack the United States because unfortunately sanctions tend to hurt the middle class and they tend to hurt the actual civilians, not the government. So that would be the kind of thing where you know, Trump might or Trump might refuse to step down. But if they were to impose sanctions, if other countries were to impose sanctions and our middle class started to feel the burn, he just wouldn't have any support anymore because a huge portion of it would be impacted by the actions of those other nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can only see I just that they would pay attention. <laughs> I don't. I don't consider that a distinct possibility. Like, if, if, if sanctions happen against the United States after this election, I will be shocked. Because, you know, these nations won't take sanctions against some of the, like, more aggressively authoritarian nations that are economically benefit, benefiting them right now. That, like, let's say Trump, you know, rigs an election or something. That's really bad, but, like... You, you get into nations in, in Europe who get a lot of trade from China, and if they're not putting sanctions on China right now, then how, how are we going to expect them to put sanctions on the United States, which is the, an even bigger trading partner for them, just because of the results of one election? I, I don't see that as a distinct possibility. I think you'll get a lot of fing, like finger waving. I think you'll get a lot of people saying, I'm discouraged by... But I think that United States leaders, or not leaders, but Western leaders have shown that they're almost always willing to talk to and engage with uh, authoritarians and dictators as long as it benefits their country, right? You said self-interest. The ha- having, a, having a beneficial trade relationship with the United States for them is more in their benefit than having a democracy, essentially. I mean, you could argue that for some, but I don't think that's true of all. Um, I I mean, what we have to remember also is that the populist movement we're seeing in the United States is present in other countries as well. So while we're sitting here and speaking this way about President Trump, there are lots of people saying the same thing about Boris Johnson in the UK. So obviously, among the countries that I don't think have very strong populist leaders who are already sort of schmoozing with President Trump, I think that they would step out. I think Germany, for example, would be a country where um, they would recognize that having the United States as a trade partner is valuable, but only if the power that is being held by the United States is being properly managed. Because if you're having a trade relationship with a country that um, that its economy is going to start suffering because of the exact policies that that administration is enacting, I don't think there's much benefit there. So I think it kind of depends. It would be a case by case scenario, but I could foresee, like, I, I do think it would be a, a, um, a viable approach that some countries might take in order to um, sort of rein in the power of the United States. Thank you both for uh, the insight on that. And um, I think that both of you brought up, everybody here has brought up really important points. Um, I don't want the um, us to get too wrapped up in this just because I know that other people have things they want to talk about, but this is an incredibly important and uh, nuanced issue. Um, and it is a hypothetical. So, I mean, we will see after um, it is time for, uh, hopefully, uh, Trump to... Uh, relinquish power we will see what happens um so i guess just kind of to close my segment um 
most voters kind of know who they are voting for and knew who they were voting for prior to the debates. But um, a Forbes poll found that 11 percent of voters were still undecided. That was the key audience for Biden and Trump. So um, to, to any of our listeners out there, if you were part of that uh, percentage. Um, I hope that the debate or at least the vice presidential debate was informative for you. Um, and hopefully our conversations can help shed some light on some of the issues at hand. So with that, um, I think we are going to move on to some topics that Musfa is an expert on. I wouldn't say expert. Uh, it was like <laughs> one semester of high school. But uh, something that like comes up a lot in a lot of elections in the U.S. and I'm sure other countries as well is if you vote third party, you're wasting your vote. A vote for this person or a vote for any person besides this person, it's a vote for the opposite party. Uh, and, you know, sadly, these people are right because of how our voting system is set up. And uh, this comes from a French sociologist by the name of Maurice Duverger, who came up with the principle, law, you know, just like a trend called Duverger's law. And now this uh, trend principle law um, simply states that in a first-past-the-post voting system, similar to what we have here in America, um, two-party systems are the tendency to be favored. And then the corollary to that is in a ranked-choice voting system, you are able to have a higher percent of um, uh, a higher chance of having multi parties uh, in you know all forms of government, and you know there's a lot of like a mathematical basis to it, but you know in a nutshell, having a ranked choice voting system like on any level of government just tends to be um, better for a lot of people. And uh, something that's not on the presidential level for a second is a paper I found from the journal Electoral Studies called The Alternative Vote by um, Sarah John, Haley Smith, and Elizabeth Zach. And what they found was that ranked choice voting, even on an individual uh, local level, tends to increase the percent of candidates of color, uh, female candidates of color, and also female candidates in general from running and winning. So it tends to increase representation uh, in elections and who wins elections, and also third parties um, because of a concept of, you know, just vote splitting isn't an issue with a ranked choice system. And I think um, in America, at least, um, a ranked choice system most likely will never happen because both parties, it's a bipartisan recognition that it would weaken their two-party hold. Um, so I was just interested to see what your guys' thoughts on this entire hodgepodge of issues is. I know that I really wish that we could have something like ranked choice voting. Um, yeah, kind of get rid of the monopoly, the monopoly that uh, Democrats and Republicans have and kind of, I mean, we see that there's so much tension between the uh, the two parties. Um, I mean, I know that I personally have really strong opinions myself leaning one way, um, but still it kind of gives an option for, um, yeah, there should just be less of this stronghold on politics or either this or that. Um yeah, I mean, that's kind of my take on it. So, uh, oh, sorry. Oh, go, go, ahead. go ahead, Anna. Um, okay, so I, I, I'm taking a class right now in college that's, um, uh, it's, it's finite based, but um, we did about two months on different systems of voting. And I think that if we do end up implementing a non-first-past-the-post voting, we shouldn't we, we probably should go a little bit further in terms of what is the most efficient 
past ranked choice voting because ranked choice voting is still flawed. Well, it's complicated, right? All voting choices are inherently flawed. There was a, um, a math, uh, mathematician uh, who came up with this thing called Arrows and Possibility Theorem. And it basically says that there is no voting system which is entirely fair, meaning where somebody can change their choices that are unrelated to you and win and and have them win and you lose because of that despite having no effect on on you or having a change that's unrelated or that is related to you and you get more than uh like you change only in a positive way and then you drop down there are scenarios in which that will always happen one of the two will always happen in any voting system but the best voting system that i've seen is i believe it's called the five star system and what it is is you get your little voting sheet and it has all the candidates and it gives you a choice to rank them in terms of out of five stars and then the candidate with the highest average is the one that wins this eliminates a little bit of the um you know giving more stars to one candidate uh affects the other ones because they're averages and so if I gave somebody two stars, you know, that's subtracting from them versus if I usually subtracting from them because we assume a 2.5 average versus if I gave them three stars, probably a good thing. Um, and it, it gives you a little bit more flexibility, right? Because let's say there are three candidates in race, right? And I love candidate one. He's my favorite. I'd give him five stars. Candidate two. I I real I also really like so I'd probably give him four stars and then candidate three I hate so I'd give him one star. Now in a ranked choice voting system, all I get to say is one two three, right? But that doesn't really reflect how I feel about those people. Versus five stars, four stars, and one stars does. Yeah, that's kind of funny. It reminds me of um, the Likert scale. Uh, which like in every survey, you really see that whole strongly disagree, somewhat disagree, neutral. Mm -hmm. and, you know, so on and so forth. So it's kind of similar to that, funnily enough. It's basically that, except for voting. Um, something that's interesting, and I actually much fall where the rest of you guys seem to fall, which is um, moving towards a system like ranked choice voting, or in Jackson's case, like the um, averaging of the stars. Um, but just something to kind of consider, which is... Um, anything like ranked choice voting or this averaging um, where you're essentially turning to only counting the popular vote, um, it kind of begs the question, what at that point did the electoral college? Um, because in some form or fashion, um, specifically with like runoff voting and or ranked choice, ranked choice voting, um, you are going off of the rankings that people make, but that falls on popular vote and kind of makes the, purpose of an electoral college there isn't one so i kind of wanted to know what you guys felt about that i don't know if you guys are in favor of the electoral you're in favor of um reforming it but either way i think it, it does pose an interesting question because the electoral college is certainly an important part of our voting history and the history of the united states in general so it's just kind of interesting thing to think about i have very strong opinions about the electoral college <laughs> um I think that 
Well, while I understand the context of why the Electoral College was created, I feel like it no longer serves the people of the United States anymore. Um, I know that that is a controversial statement, and some of you guys might disagree, so I would love to hear after um, I kind of say my piece about, you know, some possible conflicting statements and um, so on. But I don't know. It seems like when the Electoral College was created, oftentimes now, whenever I hear people argue against abolishing the electoral college the argument is always oh well smaller states will have less of a say and it shows a very different way of thinking where that's looking at you know viewing voting as a bi-state thing as opposed to a bi-person thing um so it makes sense to me that in an age where education is more accessible and information is more accessible than ever that we can kind of turn toward that popular vote a little bit more um you know the electoral college of course on as you said has been a very important part of our voting history and i do understand that it has held a lot of merit and could technically hold a lot of merit as well but i feel like we're ready as a country to start moving away from relying on that um you know i don't while, while definitely there is a, a strong identification of people with their states, whenever I'm voting, um, I'm not necessarily, I don't know, I think, I think by looking at votes as a bi-person thing as opposed to a lumping voting as a, as a state affair, um, I feel like that's starting to change so we can move in the direction of getting rid of the Electoral College. But to, to answer your question, Anna, about let's say we want ranked choice voting, just for instance, right? But how do we do that without getting rid of the electoral college entirely, if we wanted to keep it, right? And so you could, you, there's one of two options you could go with, right? So state by state, these could be implemented. Uh, for example, uh, the state of Maine right now has ranked choice voting. They will have a ranked choice ballot for the president of the United States. They just will only submit their electoral votes for the candidate that tops the ranked choice instead of the um, the plurality method. Um, as well, you know, if you want to, they break it up even into smaller groups, right? Because Maine doesn't do uh, winner takes all; they do uh, congressional districts. So for every congressional district, there's a presidential race, and whoever wins the ranked choice voting in that race will win the singular electoral vote for that um, that congressional district. In terms of uh, ways that you could abolish the electoral college and, and have this sort of ranked choice voting system, you're never going to get rid of the electoral college via an amendment. It's just never going to happen. You've got enough swing states where they have the votes uh, and they just won't ratify it, right? Or you have... Um, Republicans who have a significant advantage in the Electoral College, they don't want to get rid of it, right? So even if 60% of the country, or even let's say a supermajority, 66% of the country supports getting rid of the Electoral College, you're still never going to get rid of it via a constitutional amendment. What you might get rid of it with is the interstate compact, which is this idea that um, a bunch of states get together, states that would equal to... 270 or more electoral votes and that means that they as a voting block decide the election if they all vote one way they decide the election and they sign an agreement that says we will vote 
with whatever the popular vote says. No matter what the people in our state say, we will vote for the person who wins the popular vote. Therefore, um, if you have like California, if you have Texas, you know, if you have Florida, like if you have a bunch of big states in this and they all decide, yes, okay, that's what we're doing. We will go with the popular vote and not the electoral one. We signed a contract with California and all these other ones. And everybody is confident that all the other ones are going to follow through on their promise and send their electors to, to submit the popular vote thing. Then you might get rid of the, the, then there's a significant possibility you get rid of the electoral college. There's always this significant probability that one of those states uh, breaks that promise near the end, right? If, if, you're, if your state votes 10 points uh, towards the opposing candidate and the other candidate wins the, the popular vote and you're up for re-election in two years, you know, that's a tough decision to make. Do you, because your voters are going to want you to make a decision. They're going to probably want their, the candidate that they voted for to win. And so it, it's, a, it's about generally how you're going to do it. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen. More and more, it, it was a really big thing, like post-2016. So like 2017, there was a big push for the interstate compact. But it sort of faded. And now my guess is that maybe in a decade or two, we'll have enough to, we'll have 270 and that 270 will be able to attempt to use it during an election. And we'll see if that holds or not. But my guess is that we will see an interstate compact play into elections within the next. That's it. Sorry, I talked for like 20 minutes. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at it right now and uh, between of the states who have it enacted or it's like in like uh, what's it called the docket to be voted on by like either you know referendum or by their state legislatures there's only 51.7 percent that do not have it either enacted or pending so it's it's close a little bit yeah it's it's the pending right because things can pend yeah. for li- forever right that's what happens in the in the Senate if they don't want to pass they won't put it up for debate if the speaker doesn't want to pass it. And so my guess is that's where a lot of these are going to lie. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful it'll be a long process. I mean, it'll be like, it'll be like an amendment process, which will take usually about a decade, usually more like it's like five years to a decade, but yeah. Well, thank you for that. That was extremely informative. Um, brought up all of my everything that I learned in uh, Are We the People class uh, that I had forgot about. So, um, yeah, the sweat uniform yeah, that... is the best. That was a great We the People answer. <laughs> Maybe a little long. <laughs> um, so, Maswa, do you have anything else you kind of want to address with some of your topics? Oh, I don't. It was just mainly get that out there, uh, talk about it a little bit because it's not talked about as much as it should be, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we often have this very stagnant idea of U.S. politics and, you know, the idea that maybe things could change, even if it does take a really long time. Um, There is definitely possibility for that. All right. So moving on, uh, Jackson, would you like to talk a little bit about um, you expressed some interest in talking about immigration restrictions and um, some specifics with that? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to keep this uh, relatively 
brief because uh, it's it's sort of a specific thing that that piqued my interest, and um, I, I think that I, I think that it's important to talk about because I haven't heard a lot of discourse about it, not on like um, the depths of Twitter that I um, that I, I lurk to in the middle of the night <laughs> when I don't want to sleep. So um, recently, there has been a uh, an, a new law put into um, the Federal Register. Um, and do you have that? Do you have the section title in front of you? Because I know I sent it to you, but I forget what it is. Um, it's USC 1182 um, 3D is okay. what I have written down. Yep, that's it. So what that essentially does is it provides another restriction on immigration. Um, there are many restrictions on, uh, you know, coming into this country, uh, which makes sense, right? You, you, you don't want somebody who is a war criminal in another state or, you know, an, a serial killer actively being hunted by the other law to come here. That makes sense, right? There's always going to be immigration restrictions. Um, you, they've tightened them up in recent years. USA has one of the highest, one of the more high scrutiny immigration uh, because you're, the tests are a little bit looser, but you are going to need to take a, an English test. You're going to need to take a civics test. These are all to become a citizen, not to get in, but um, all those kind of things to become a citizen. Um, this is also to become a citizen. Um, what it is, is you cannot have any membership to a quote unquote totalitarian party. And what that means, what this law is intended to do is stop people who are members of the CCP, which is the Chinese Communist Party, from being able to get their U.S. citizenship. Um, because specifically, so it, it elaborates on totalitarian parties only in a single respect in saying that communist parties are totalitarian. All like if the party is communist, then therefore they will not let in the person to come in, presumably so that they can reject the Chinese communist party members because it's got communist in its name, right? This worries me greatly as a person who is a lefty and a person who is very left-leaning um, and just generally as, as somebody who is worried about um, wiggle room in laws, right? I like laws that, you know, they say the law and then you follow the law, you know, you like it or not, but I prefer laws in which it is expressly defined and there's no wiggle room. If I don't like the law, you know, I can petition against it. I can see if it's unconstitutional. I can uh, try to get my legislator to re-legislate that law, et cetera, et cetera. But when there's, this, when there's this gray space, you know, that's just prime for somebody with jack boots and an iron fist to uh, take that law and use it for their advantage. So that, th that's what I'm worried with because you've seen several times over this, over this, just this election year, you know, Donald Trump actively calling the Democratic Party a communistic party, right? They're, when you get to actually trying to define if that's true or not, it's fairly blatantly false, you know? You could argue it's hyperbole, and, you know, that could be, that could be true. Donald Trump could just be making a joke or, you know, hyperbolizing every time he says that the Democrats are communists, which he's done several times now. But I don't like that wiggle room, right? If the mm -hmm. border guard says, you know, 
if we if we go to somewhere like like Germany, right? If there's a if there's a German immigrant coming in and he is a member of the SPD, which is the Social Democratic Party of Germany, and the 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 more not not the left farthest left wing, but the center left wing of that. It's social democratic, right? It's in the name. It's not socialist, it's not communist, it's not anything like that. But they're further left than the Democrats, you know? And they're from a party that has had a long history, and that long history has included socialist tendencies. So I, I worry about that person who's a member of the SPD, right? Because you should be encouraging people who are interested in civics in their country to come over here and be interested in civics, you know, to come over here and be invested in the government of their, the, the new government that they have. And so this, this law worries me greatly. I do, I honestly think it's not going to have a lot of effect, but it's, it's part of a broader trend of leftist repression that the Trump administration has, has gone through. And that, that worries me greatly, you know, I know people who are because there's a there's a it's called CPUSA, right? Communist Party USA. Like I know people who are part of Communist Party USA, right? Those people shouldn't have to be scared that they might get their uh, citizenship revoked just because they're part of a political party that advocates for equality and change. And even if it's like disagree or agree however much you want, but I worry about that sort of wiggle room. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting if that ever, you know, really affected in anything of substance that uh, there would be a challenge that it would be cruel and unusual punishment because I believe there's been cases uh, heard by the Supreme Court where they say that, you know, revoking citizenship constitutes as a cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, so you can't revoke citizenship. It's just a qualifier for people coming in. But like, oh, yeah, yeah, when yeah. you get to a point where it's a qualifier for people coming in, then you start to worry about, well, is it a qualifier for me to be a citizen now, you know, even though I was naturalized here? Um, yeah, a few few brief things, um, just because this is like the citizenship stuff is very interesting to me. Um, like even taking personal opinion out of it, because I know you were saying personally that you do identify like um, as very far left, um, which like I think be a fairly accurate representation of all of our political beliefs but mm -hmm. in, that in general um this is this is first of all encroaching on freedom of conscience, right like at what point are you going to tell someone what they can and can't believe in, in the united states like that's foundational that's a foundational right is that you're allowed to prescribe to whatever belief system you have and there are obviously legal limitations on what you can do in the name of that belief system but the idea of freedom of conscience is foundational. So I, I think, first of all, that's like problematic in and of itself. Um, and I'd be curious to see who support this, what they would have to say about that. Um, and then on top of that, I think it's very hypocritical because the United States is always so conscious about um, foreign interference with our elections. And this feels exactly like 
um, in some ways for an interference, because if someone would have to essentially say, okay, I cannot prescribe to this party in order to become a United States citizen, well, then when it comes time to vote, um, I know, like, for example, my mom uh, voted in the Brazilian presidential elections because uh, when you're a dual citizen, you're allowed to do that. So does that mean that now they're not allowed to cast their ballot for these parties either, at which point the United States would be interfering in some in another country's elections? So it, it just kind of feels that, like, um, there are so many obvious like foundational rights that the United States provides to its own citizens. I, I don't see how this could be constitutional or I don't know, just even like from a moral standpoint, I, I don't understand how someone could justify passing that into law, but um, I'm sure they'll come up with something because I'm constantly amazed by the way they justify their actions. Just, <laughs> just to jump in. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't legislated. It was uh, an, ex a, I, be I believe it was, an executive or I don't think it was an executive order. I think it was a bureaucratic decision. So the legislative passed something that was like, stop people with negative track records from coming in or becoming citizens or something. And then the bureaucracy says, okay. And the bureaucracy is all controlled by, you know, an administration that was like, why don't we do this as part of that? That's why it's in the federal register is mm -hmm. because it was, um, they had to notify of a bureaucratic change. Hmm, okay, that is fascinating. Thank you for bringing that up. I had not heard of that before. Um, Jackson, do you have anything else you'd like to say about that or anybody else have any opinions on that? No, no? I, I, um, I, I do, I, I am, uh, I am a little bit curious now, uh, and this is just a me thing, on uh, your mother's perspective on the Brazilian elections, Anna, because I do have opinions and I, I was, I was just, I'm curious to hear hers. Uh, so do I. Um, <laughs> very briefly, my mom um, did not vote for, vote for Jair Bolsonaro in the past election, obviously. Um, I have some family that did. And from what I can tell, the sentiments are almost identical to that of people who are strong supporters of President Trump. It was this idea that the government's corrupt and we um, we need someone who's going to come in and change everything. And I guess they felt that um, Bolsonaro was not corrupt, which I forward to you, I guess. I don't know how you believe that. But um, my mom was really disheartened um, by the results of the election. Um especially because one of the most famous presidents in Brazilian history Lula, was their president. King. Um, king. Yeah. A king. For real. <laughs> um, but he was, he was the president basically two presidents ago is the best way I can describe it. Um, and uh, instituted important policies in sort of bridging the, income inequality gap in Brazil because Brazil's middle class is is very small and it's it's like a persistent problem um and that was basically making public universities free and that was something that Bolsonaro was like adamant from the second that he got put in office that he was going to get rid of um for whatever reasons and I think that was one of the things that hurt my mom the most because she she grew up 
very poor and was someone who really benefited from having an equal opportunity to get higher education because public universities were free. And so I elected that Brazil was basically going to see um, a, a degradation in any steps that they had made forward in order to bridge that income inequality gap. And that, um, that, you know, beyond just their general economy not doing very well, which I think was pretty, was something most people predicted under Bolsonaro. Um, she was just very sad to see that yet again, they were using education as a weapon against the poor. So I think that's, that was her main, uh, her main concern with the election. Those are really powerful sentiments. Thank you for that. I don't want to move on from that. I guess we are actually going to be talking about foreign relations um, and the influence and role of the president in the U.S. and kind of some pertinent issues. But thank you for sharing that with us. Um, yeah. But before we move on, um, I, 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 I just want to get a sense for if I am weird for doing this or if this is a thing that like political science kids do, too. Um, but, like, do you guys ever, like, wonder, like, this is the reason that I got into Brazilian politics is because I was like, hmm, well, obviously, like, Bolsonaro's um, rough right now. And so I wanted to see, like, what is the makeup of the legislature of Brazil, right? Like, what parties are there in Brazil? You know, which one would I hypothetically support? Who are their candidates? You know, <laughs> I, and then going on the Wikipedia page and all the Wikipedia pages have these beautiful little like charts that are like the congressional charts in America where there's like blue and red, except they're like a huge amount of colors. God, I love it so much. I would intensely recommend it yeah. if you've never done it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a poli sci kid by like any means, but I only do that for like Pakistani politics, which you know, makes sense since my family's from there. Yeah. Um, kind of leading into the next topic, I think for sure, like that's something I do too. I wouldn't say necessarily looking at... um. Uh, the different makeups of parties, but I'm always very interested to compare um, leadership and also the people's response. Um, so, for example, um, something that was really interesting to me was the people's response in the United States to President Trump and the people's response in Brazil to President Bolsonaro, because um, they have very similar platforms. They have very similar rhetoric, but the people responded very differently. Um, and so I, I think that's something that I've always been really interested in is kind of how do certain groups mobilize th those voter bases or those groups of people and how is it different in different countries? Um, this is a this is probably a good group of people to talk to in terms of um, international affairs with America, because I'm fairly certain everybody except for Annalise has at least one foreign born parent here in very different <laughs> places. Right. Yeah. Pakistan, Brazil, Canada. Right. <laughs> Could you pick three more different countries? I mean, yeah, but that's I okay, yeah. but you you get the point though. No, I do. On top of that, Annalise's like breadth of knowledge about Cambodia is a little mind blowing. <laughs> oh, yeah. I do have oh, a weird obsession with that. So <laughs> yeah. Um, despite the fact I am aggressively American, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, not by choice. Um, I am an international studies major, so that gives me a little bit of of uh, standing here um but yeah segueing into something that i'm really interested in for me i think um everyone has their different reasons for why they're voting for who they're voting for and um jackson you made a really a really interesting point that that i agree with and that's that for a lot of his presidency um 
Trump has had very aggressive rhetoric, but his policy hasn't been as aggressive as the way he speaks about um, communities or speaks about other nations, um, which is obviously that's changing a little bit more as our political climate's getting even more intense within the past year leading up to the election. So for me, what's always kind of been a key definer in why I was voting the way I was, was because the president holds such an important role of being um, the figurehead, especially when it comes to international relationships. And then what the president's views are tend to guide our foreign policy. And so I just picked three specific um, events that I think are gonna be really important or that have been really important in the past four years um, and are gonna be important in the years to come that I think when it comes to voting and deciding who you're voting for, these are three issues to consider. Um, so the three that I specifically picked was uh, Hong Kong sovereignty. And the reason I picked that was just in general, I think it's going to spur conversations about, um, first of all, I think it's going to tie in really um, the creation of a Kurdish state, um, because I think that the arguments there are, are quite similar among the two groups of people. But I think it also kind of harks back to our decisions um, when it came to supporting the creation of Israel. And we don't have to speak specifically on these countries, but just the idea of the United States supporting um, sovereignty and um, also that we have this kind of history of wanting to um, encourage companies to, er, companies, oh my goodness, encourage <laughs> countries to turn towards democracy. Um, the next one I picked was the migration crisis, which I think that's a little self-explanatory for why it's so important right now, but it's going to be even more important to come. And that kind of goes hand in hand with um, the refugee crisis as well. And then the third issue that I thought was really interesting and was something we should talk about is um, what's going on in the Ukraine between Russia um, and essentially also dealing with the sovereignty and the militarization of Crimea. So, yeah. Do you mean Crimea? Um, you know, I don't really know. We, we did this in debate and everyone pronounced it Crimea. So that's how I was going to say it. But I mean, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I have never heard that, that honestly. Does anybody prefer anything besides Crimea? I've literally never heard Crimea. You can say what you want. I was, I was just, yeah. It sounds like a nice condiment, though. <laughs> I think that regardless, we all we all know what Anna is referring to. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I don't really know how to pronounce it either. So I'm good with either pronunciation. <laughs> but yeah, you guys can just kind of jump in on on any of those with thoughts or if you guys want me to get the ball rolling on one of the specific ones that's cool too um, <laughs> um i know that i have i mean the thing that i'm most familiar with is um kind of the immigration crisis and the first thing that comes to my mind is at the uh south border with mexico um the issue with um you know detainment and the separation of families and while some of that has um, there have been attempts to kind of rectify some of those wrongdoings. Um, it's still going to be a very important issue to deal with. Um, and also, I think I listened to a podcast pretty recently um, by This American Life. Um, would highly recommend it. I don't remember the exact episode number or the name, but um, it was about, I think it was called The Out Crowd. Um, and in act one of the podcast, they talk about, um, how hard it is to immigrate to the U S, um, 
and how or um, migrate to the U.S. And so that's why illegal immigration is such a big deal. Um, and then that is kind of weaponized by um, right wing um, politicians and, and rhetoric. Um, but, you know, hopefully this if there's a new administration, God willing, um, you know, we can start to see maybe some changes in um you know, how one can become a legal citizen of the U.S. and making that process less difficult, making it easier for people to seek asylum, seeking asylum in the U.S., um, especially coming from uh, Central and South America, used to be a lot easier than it is now. Uh, Now it is essentially impossible to do so. Um, The I, the criteria that somebody has to hit in order to actually be granted asylum, um, even if somebody has proof that they are, you know, at risk um, if they are deported because of their nationality. Um, the chances of them being allowed to seek asylum are so low. So I, that's a, that's a, been a major voting issue for me in this election. Um, yeah, specifically on that, I think something that proves uh, the way this administration would like to handle the migration uh, to refugees in the United States, we've um, historically always had like a cap, essentially, on how many we think is feasible. Um, the United States cap on refugees is actually um, much lower prior to the Syrian refugee crisis, because I do know that um, certain countries like um, Germany and France actually lowered their caps after taking in um, an influx of refugees that they felt they couldn't. Mm-hmm. But ours has always kind of been known for being lower. And President Trump um, was uh, in support the third year of his presidency of lowering it again. It was something that I think kind of struck a chord with me because I realized I was like in these people's greatest time of need. Lower an already low number of people that were accepting when... um, Mm -hmm. Truth be told, refugees in the United States have actually been known to integrate very well um, and end up benefiting the economy, which, as usual, was the number one reason um, that was stated for why we needed to lower was because we are a welfare state and we have welfare programs and that they would come leech off of our programs and then leave the country with a broken economy, which is, as usual, the opposite of what actually occurred. <laughs> Um, I'll hop in on um, Hong Kong. Um, that one's the one I know most about. Um, there's a Hong Kong is incredibly complex, right? And what it essentially meant on a global stage is it really did establish uh, Ch- China's dominance over international relations, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it's really hard to take something like that and turn it into essentially little to no consequences for your country, right? They were blatantly like abusing protesters, right? Blatantly suppressing speech. And yet very little happened to uh, put sanctions on China and stuff. Um, which, Which of course backs up my point from earlier in the episode that sanctions would never happen in the US because if they don't happen to China, they're not happening in the US. But, you know, left-wing destroyed with facts and logic, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, 
the problem is in comparing them with the, some of the states that I think you compared them to is if somewhere like Hong Kong were to become an independent state, they are not some pe people who are forming an independent state based on ethnicity. Most of the people in Hong Kong are still Han Chinese or at least or, or Cantonese or there's a lot of different um, types of, of Southeast Asian that uh, people from Hong Kong are. It's a very international city, but they're coming if they were they, they wanted an independent state. Right. And they didn't want it because they wanted to be with people like them. They wanted it because they wanted democracy. Right. They wanted um, sort of these uh, enlightenment values. Um, to be applied to them and not to live under an authoritarian Chinese regime versus places like I think that Israel is a perfect example in terms of a place where an ethno state is formed and lots of international strife has been caused because of it. There are people that fall on either side of the Israeli and Palestinian debate, but certainly it has been a debacle in all respects and uh, very detrimental for uh, people in both of those nations or yeah, sure. Both of those nations. Um, so I'd say try to stay away a little bit from, you know, comparing them to states that I think are different. Obviously all states are different, but like comparing like Hong Kong sovereignty to like a, um, a Sikh state in India. Like, I just don't think they track onto each other. Um, and so, Yes, support Hong Kong and stuff. Um, they really do deserve that independence. Um, the problem is there's little to nothing that nations are willing to do to stop it because of China's um, global dominance over trade. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead, Mustafa. No, I was just laughing. Like, not like laughing at Jackson, but just like, you know, the chuckle, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think where the president, whoever it may be, stands on that issue is super important because, I mean, just in general, obviously, with what you're just saying, like the sovereignty of Hong Kong is means so much more than just freedom for those people, even though that alone is extremely important. But it's also going to mean taking a strong stance against China. And then beyond even that, it's going to sort of set up where is the United States going to stand in these movements for sovereignty for other groups of people or other nations in the future, too. So mm -hmm. I think that's really going to sort of set or establish a precedent on how we're going to respond in these situations. Because um, just like Hong, people of Hong Kong, there's also the Kurds who are obviously trying to establish their state as well. And that would be similar in that the United States would have to take a strong stand against Turkey, um, which thus far we have not keen on doing here. So I think it's um it's it's going to establish a really a really important precedent on where on how we're going to act in the future in these matters in general. I know this is a little unrelated I mean it's a lot unrelated, but whenever I hear Kurds, like the the group of Kurds who are trying to establish their own state, it makes me think of um poutine which i just had for dinner last night it was really good oh, wow. so would recommend both kurdish sovereignty and kurds in your stomach <laughs> thank you for that appreciate it <laughs> um, you're welcome 
honestly don't know a whole lot about what's going on with the Ukraine right now. Anna, could you kind of elaborate on that? Um, yeah, so it's really interesting. Essentially what's happening is that Russian forces um, are much stronger military-wise than the Ukraine, obviously. Mm-hmm. And they are pushing into the border of, I'm just going to call it Crimea because I got gypped last time <laughs> for it. So they're pushing into um, Crimea. And um, Crimea I mean, essentially to everyone else is land that is a part of the Ukraine. Um, So it started with Russia trying to annex um, that entire region. And what they've done is displaced a ton of ethnic Ukrainians um, who were living there. So it's it's similar to kind of what's occurring with um, the borders and... um, the displacement of Palestinians who were living in land that was given to Palestine, but obviously as the Israeli government continues to push um, farther and farther outside of the original borders that were drawn, it's displacing those people. And that's the same thing that's happening in Ukraine. Um, and it's we're kind of at a, at a weird standstill because while there's still um, high tensions in the region, Russia has been denounced um, for their actions by a lot of global superpowers, but no one's really stepping forward and taking um, action against them. And I think that's just honestly because the international community is a bit scared of Russia or doesn't want to have to get their feet wet in this situation. Um, But not only is it calling into question the sovereignty of other countries, because obviously the sovereignty of Ukraine is being completely ignored. The people of um, Crimea who were there originally, which would have been ethnic Ukrainians, do not want to be a part of Russia. They want to be a part of the Ukraine. Um, but those people have been displaced. And um, there's actually a word for it. It's, um, oh, I'm trying to remember. Okay, they're called internally displaced persons or IDPs. And the mm-hmm. population um, right now is extremely high it's one of the highest we've ever seen um in situations like this and that's of people that have been displaced from crimea and the ukraine um so it's calling into question sovereignty it's calling into question um the wants of the people but it's also led to a lot of human rights abuses um because the people who are ethnically russian in this area are disregarding the rights of the people who were there before um, a couple of little background details that, that I am a little bit knowledgeable on. Um, so the reason that uh, uh, creamy mayo, or uh, however you pronounce it, is, uh, is an important reason that Russia wants to hold is because it has access to the Black Sea, which is the only part of Russia, if you include Crimea, that is warm year-round, so it's not frozen over, Right. Russia is a very cold place. They don't have access to any waters that are for trading and for shipping thing for exporting in in winter. They they have to like get these huge ice barges that like cut through the ice and it's like way more expensive and generally a hassle. But if you control the Black Sea, then you control trade out of that and you can trade year round, right? That's why they want it. Um the other thing that that I wanted to bring up is Gosh, it sort of seems like we're seeing a trend, right? You know, we see Russia get more authoritarian. Um, 
as the years progress. Um, we see China getting more authoritarian as the years progress. We see the United States getting more authoritarian as the years progress. We see Brazil getting more authoritarian as the years progress. We see Britain getting more authoritarian. Is it, there's been a real wave of authoritarianism in global politics. And because of the way the global trade networks work, there's really not anything that anything that any one individual nation can do about it. You know, and so this worries me, obviously. I mean, this whole podcast has been basically us saying, hmm, look at this bad thing. That sure does worry me. Now let me go back to eating my uh, my poutine. But I, it's, it's rough. I do think it's indicative of a failure of, um, you know, free market economics as a way to ensure democracy and as... This is my personal opinion, very personal opinion, but as capitalism, as a sustainable uh, economic system that won't collapse in on itself. Yeah, I mean, very interesting points brought up. And um, I mean, quite honestly, I don't even feel smart enough to respond to all of that. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a global trend of, you know, I mean, we we all kind of know, or at least this is, I kind of perceive global politics as well as domestic politics. You know, there's a wave, you know, we, we see more. Um, I'm and it's not the fun the- kind of wave, like when you're going to a beach and you see one, it's the mean <laughs> kind of wave where they do fascism. It sucks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we see like a, like a wave you know, that leans more to the right. And then we see one to the left and we're going pretty far to the right. Like you said, we're starting to see, not starting to see fascism is here. Um, And so, yeah, it's definitely interesting. um, But that is why it is so important to, um, you know, whether if you are in the U.S. to participate in the upcoming election, um, election day is November 3rd, correct? Yes. Um. So this podcast will be out before then. Most people have already, uh, like some people are voting early. I know I voted by ballot, uh, or of course I voted by ballot, mail-in ballot. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, make sure you're getting out and voting. And then of course for you know anybody listening to the pod who is not from the U.S. Um, participating in your own elections and um you know, this is a, this is exactly Jackson said, this is not just a USA issue. This is a global thing that um, we're all kind of battling. So, um, yeah, with that, um, are we uh, good to end the pod for today? I feel like that's a good stopping point. Yeah. Okay. Before we leave, can I just say something to everybody here? I love you. <laughs> love you too, Jackson. Thank you very much. Mustafa. All right. Hold on. Hold what? on. Mustafa. What? Say it back. I love you too, Jackson. Thank you very much. No toxic masculinity here. All right. I wasn't expecting it on a podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, we love you guys, and we will see. But you next I love time. you the mostest. All right. Bye, everybody. <laughs>